I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 107. I don't need to tell you it's the end of the year, I'm sure, do I? Surely we can't uh, go into next year without reflecting on that fact. We can look back or we can look forward. Politically, as you know, many people want to forget the last year and only look forward. And that's quite biblical. Paul says to the Philippians, forgetting what is past and straining, looking forward to what lies ahead. But we're going to look back using uh, this psalm I don't know what the year has been like for you. Many of us have been through difficulties, perhaps quite severe difficulties, health issues, which are shock, bereavement, always difficult, job difficulties, broken relationships. Perhaps you've not made the spiritual progress that you think you should have done. Maybe you've fallen this past year. You've backslid. But despite all those things, whatever's true of you, as we look back, we must look back with thanksgiving. And that's the purpose of this psalm. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast Love. I'll explain that in a minute. There's no question as you read this psalm that as the psalmist goes through the experience of God's people in the past, he wants to arouse them to thanksgiving. There are six verses in the psalm that say that. Let us thank the Lord. And it's done by considering what is the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, that's why we have a little bit of a difficulty this evening because different versions of the Bible, if you could put that up, please, different versions of the Bible have quite different words. If you use the English Standard Version as I do and from which I'm preaching, it has these words, steadfast love so it has the idea of a love which is firm a love that continues a love that will not fail a faithful love the NIV captures it in those words unfailing love the church bible new king james version in this chapter translates it using three different words Mercy, goodness, uh, loving kindness. It's a very special word in the Old Testament, chesed, because it's a love that endures despite the sins of the people. Because it's a love that doesn't depend upon the people loved, but on the lover, upon God himself it depends on his 
covenant, his promises, his faithfulness. For example, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and when Moses was up on the mountain and they fashioned a golden calf while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Why didn't God blot them out? He should have done, shouldn't he? He said, Moses, leave them alone. Let me blot them out, I'll make of you a people. Then the Lord revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. And this is what he said, and I'm using the words steadfast love here. Listen to it. The Lord, the Lord, who is he? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's why he didn't blot them out. And when uh, uh, Nehemiah rehearses the sinfulness of the people of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 9, and he refers to the time when they, again, they came out of Egypt uh, and in the wilderness they're so disheartened they want to return to Egypt. Imagine it. Why didn't God just strike them down there and then? Listen to what Nehemiah 9.17 says. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know where you got that from, don't you? from Exodus 34, previous passage, just quoting it in his prayer. And therefore he says, you didn't forsake them because that's the God that you are. And so you see this psalm begins, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. This my friends is the amazing thing about God. He continues to love his people because of his promises. Even when everything cries out for judgment, even final judgment. That's what this psalm is about. He's going to consider the steadfast love of God looking at one event, and I believe the event he's describing here is the return from exile. We've been considering it as we've been looking through the, the book of Ezra. When he says in verses 2 and 3, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. We, I'm going to take this as a reference to the return from exile. The exile was a punishment for their repeated sin of idolatry, their refusal to heed the, the prophets who came to them, warning them and calling them back into God's ways. Now they've been brought back. 
as you will remember, first under Zerubbabel and then some years later under Ezra. Indeed, we can say in answer to the prayer of the previous psalm, Psalm 106 and verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. Lord, that's what you've done. And so here's the call to give thanks. Or in the language of Psalm 107 then, verse 2, he's redeemed them from trouble. God is like the kinsman, the next of kin, like Boaz was to Ruth. He stepped in to rescue his people by his powerful arm through the decree of Cyrus. He has rescued them from their trouble of exile. And he uses four figurative descriptions of what that restoration from exile was. Obviously, it's a long psalm. We don't have the time to go into uh, everything here in, in detail. In fact, we don't need to. These are highly figurative descriptions which communicate with us, I think, uh, very easily. First of all, in verse 4, the return from exile was like the return of wanderers. Israel was lost. Israel was hungry and thirsty. Israel's soul was fainting within them. And they were found. They were like prisoners. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. They've been released. Israel in captivity was like a people in prison, bound in irons forced to hard labour and finding escape impossible. That's from verse 10. From verse 17, got the third description. They're afflicted. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. The diseases of their soul are described as if they're physical and they drew near to the gates of death, so serious they were. Israel almost ceased to be a nation in exile. That was the great danger. And then from verse 23, the final description is Israel was like a storm-tossed boat due to be wrecked on the shores. We use that language, don't we? We say the, the ship of state, don't we? So we're used to using these words, as I'll tell you again, in figurative ways. We talk about the storms of life. These people were at their wit's end, like a, a ship tossed up and down at the mercy of the waves and the wind. And each one of these pictures, then of the wanderers, the prisoners, the afflicted, the storm-tossed, the people are in a totally 
hopeless situation. They are doomed. They're finished. All they can do, and what they do do, is to cry to the Lord. And he alone works. Nothing that they do, because they're helpless. And he powerfully redeems them or delivers them. So each time there's that exhortation, verse 8, for example, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. And there you have it in verse 15. And you have it in verse 21. You have it in verse 31. That's the response that must be given. Surely it is. Can you imagine any other response or any lesser response? It would be inhuman, totally thankless, not to turn to the Lord and say thank you. Bear in mind that these people didn't deserve being redeemed for their trouble. They'd been sent into their trouble. For example, in verse 11, they'd rebelled against the word of God. They'd spurned the counsel of the Most High. Why should God listen to them? Just because they're in trouble. Or verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. But God redeemed them all by his own love and power. Now if I can just point out to you some evidence of why uh, this is to be taken figuratively. Israel didn't live in a wilderness. It lived in the land of milk and honey, didn't it? Israel was not a ship-faring nation. So when these things refer to Israel, you see it's using figurative language. Also, human courts don't imprison people, usually, for their rebellion against the words of God, as you have it in verses 10 and 11. And there are so many other examples in Scripture where these things are used figuratively. I want to point this out to you because I think there's a tendency for us to read the scripture, to read prophecy, poetry, literally, and not to appreciate the, the poetic nature of the language which makes it so descriptive for us. Language would be very dull, wouldn't it? If there are no figurative descriptions. Lostness. All we like sheep have gone astray, the scripture says. Prisoners, Isaiah 42 and 49, Jesus comes to bring out from the prison those who sit in darkness. Darkness is like a prison. Of course, it's not a prison, but it's like a prison because you can't escape from it without the Lord's salvation. Sickness, Isaiah 53. And with his wounds, that is the Lord Jesus Christ's wounds, we are healed. Being made well spiritually is being healed from our sicknesses. As we sung this morning from Psalm 103. In Isaiah 54, the storm Israel 
in exile is spoken of as an afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. You see, so this language pervades the scripture. So I urge you, don't immediately jump to literal interpretations, especially in poetry like the Psalms where words are so often used figuratively. The real problem isn't wandering in a desert or being holed up in a prison. It's not uh, having diseases of the body. The real problem is sin. The real problem is of the soul and being redeemed from that under these figures. So I want us this evening to learn to look at the awful nature of sin with these figurative descriptions. And you ask me, but wait a minute, I thought you were talking about being thankful. We are talking about being thankful. This psalm is talking about being thankful. The more you understand what you've been redeemed from, the more thankful you will be. Isn't that what Jesus said about the woman who anointed him? She did that because she knew she was forgiven much. That's why she loved much. Before you became a Christian, you were lost, as in a trackless and barren wilderness. You know that hymn? See, now, when you go to the hymns, this is the sort of thing we're singing all the time. I will sing the wondrous story. I was lost, it says, but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray. As one who was in your sin, you needed to find the way. You were looking everywhere, weren't you? You were looking to pleasure or entertainment. You, some of you looked to philosophy, maybe. You looked to your family, but you were lost because Christ is the only way to the Father. Before you became a Christian, you were chained like a prisoner in a condemned cell. One of our favourite hymns, I think it's your favourite, this is it's mine, Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? What does he say? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature. And we sing it. We don't think twice about it, do we? In, in the sense of, that's odd. We know that that was true. Describes me. Before you became a Christian, you needed to be free to serve God. But sin had locked you in its dark prison. That's the terrible thing about sin. It's a power. It's a tyrant that refuses to let you go unless some greater power comes to release you. And Christ alone, as he said himself, he alone can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. Learn that before you became a Christian, you were afflicted with a terminal sickness. Well, these are all my favourite hymns now, it seems. Uh, 
Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We sing it, we know that was true of us. And that's why we praise the Lord. We needed and wanted to live a joyful life of obedience to God, but we were weighed down with afflictions. That's what sin does. Sin leaves us debilitated and finally destroys us. You see in the ministry of Jesus, his healing, his restoring life. That's what he does. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then the fourth one, learn that we are battered before we become Christians, as with a destructive storm. How lovely that we sung that this morning, didn't we? Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? And none of you said, but I'm not a sailor. It's got nothing to do with me. Did you? No, we knew that's exactly the description of me before I became a Christian. I wanted peace, but my life was like a raging storm. The scripture says the wicked are like a tossing sea. There's no peace for the wicked. That's one of the saddest things about the world, isn't it? It ever talks about peace, ever seeking peace, but it doesn't seek it from Christ, the Prince of Peace. It's Jesus who rebuked the wind and said, peace. Be still. I don't know if he said it softly or, or loudly, but softly goes, doesn't it? Peace. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but in me you'll have peace. Then the psalm ends from verse 33 by showing God's absolute sovereignty over all things on behalf of his people. He's able to judge the wicked because of their evil. You see that in verse 34. Turns a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. God is able to do that. He's able to bless his people according to his grace and his covenant promises. He turns a desert into pools of water. Verse 35. A parched land into springs of water. There he lets the hungry dwell. They establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock diminish. Those are the Old Testament covenant blessings. It's saying God is able to bless his people. He's sovereign in blessing as well as in judgment. And then God is sovereign. He's able to uh, reverse the fortunes of the most powerful oppressors. It's a lesson for today, isn't it? We get afraid. Just look at history. What, see what God has done. I quoted a few as I prayed. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Think of Cyrus. We thought of Caesar Augustus, didn't we? Amazing, isn't it? That just at the right time, he issued a decree for everyone to go back to his home city. Because the hearts of 
all rulers are in the hands of the Lord. Verse 39, when they are diminished and brought low, that's God's people, through oppression, even and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes. And so in other words, you can have total confidence in God as a Christian, whatever your circumstances are. Now it's been necessary, because the psalm does it, to explain the awful state out of which we as God's people have been redeemed. It's out of hopeless captivity. And the more we see our hopelessness and our helplessness as it was, the greater the thanksgiving. Just another example. There was that demon-possessed man of the Gerizines who, who couldn't be bound by chains, who everyone feared as he lived among the tombs. But when Jesus healed him, he begged him, I want to be with you. The Lord had done something nobody else could do. The obvious response was, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to show my love to you. When you reflect back upon before you were a Christian, you know that there was nothing in you that made the Lord set his love upon you. Don't you? There was no good religion in you, even if you were religious. It was either hypocrisy, traditional, outward, there certainly wasn't the inwardness of a true life lived in love to God. And you know that if God had dealt with you as your sins deserved, then you wouldn't be here this evening. And I wouldn't be here this evening. So in the words of the psalm then, uh, the last verse says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. That's in the English Standard Version. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As we conclude, I want you to consider it because that's what the Word of God is exhorting us to do. And I want you to consider three things about the steadfast love of the Lord to you. Three very simple things. God's love to you began when he didn't deal with you as your sins deserved. You may have been living in obvious sin, as we say, something that can be seen and clearly defined as breaking one of the Ten Commandments, or it could have been that most awful sin of religious pride and of self-trust, like the Pharisees. But God loved you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He loved you so much that he intervened in your life and took you from that pit. There's another 
uh, picture of what our lives were like before we became Christians. And he put your feet upon a rock. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the amazing thing about the love of Christ. Or here, John, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So that's the first thing. Consider that. Look back. Here you are today as a, a Christian, one who's been saved. There's only one reason why you're saved. That's because of his steadfast love of God in Christ. And secondly, consider God's love as it's continued with you. Despite your many failings, true? So that absolutely nothing can separate you from his love, not even death itself. Many of us are ashamed to remember times of unfaithfulness, aren't you? Even backslidings, times when you were very cold spiritually, and yet God did not and has not rejected you. That's his steadfast love. There will be difficult times. Be sure of it. God disciplines those whom he loves. Those difficult times are the very evidence of his love. They're not the message that God doesn't love you as someone to tell you. If it could be that you'd never experience any difficulties in your life, it's the evidence that God doesn't love you, according to Hebrews chapter 12. How wonderful to think that whether you've been a Christian a month or a year or 10 years or 50 years, like some of us, God's love has been steadfast, unfailing, unchangeable, everlasting despite who I am. And thirdly, consider the love of God as he has showered blessings upon you. The opposite of what you deserve. Imagine, he brings Israel back from exile to the land out of which uh, they had been thrown because of their sin. He brings them back to that blessing and to the renewal of, of the worship. We tend to be murmurous and complainless. We think of the, the difficulties. They're there. And the troubles and the the hardships and the injustices. My brethren, we ought to know that we don't deserve the least mercy. What has God done to you this past year? Maybe you've taken it for granted. 
there's a church here. Belvedere Road Church. The word of God has been faithfully preached. There's a fellowship of God's people. Others whom he's saved. That is a blessing that so many people don't have. We've been kept in the faith. Well, you're here. You've experienced temptations. Temptations enough to destroy you. But God has kept you, hasn't he? Don't take it for granted. That's God's love to you. And may I say, don't take it for granted that we have freedom at the moment. We are very much brought face to face with people who are persecuted, who don't have the freedom we have. What a privilege. We have the freedom to worship and to witness. Now, I've just picked out three. Surely there are so many more evidences of God's steadfast love that we can pile one on top of another as we think of the past year and our past lives. Brethren, we need to be far more careful to give thanks to the Lord. I hope we'll do that on Tuesday evening. Please don't just say, I can't do it. We're actually commanded to do it in the presence of the people of God. Just read the Psalms over and over again. That's what God expects us to do. To praise his name. Now perhaps you're here this evening and you're not able to identify with those things in your experience. You say, what? Me lost? Me imprisoned? Me so sick, sinfully? Me like on a, a storm-tossed boat? Well, if you can't identify with that, my friend, then you're not one of the redeemed, are you? Because that's the experience of all who have been redeemed, who have become Christians through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't thank God for his steadfast love, then it shows that you're still to experience it in your life. Just imagine that somebody rescued you from an imminent death, whether from an attacker, an accident. How could you not respond with thankfulness? More than just thank you and walking away. You would be totally indebted to that person. And at the moment you would think, I'll do anything for that person because they saved me. You can thank God for food. You can thank him for the gift of life. It's a great gift. You can thank him for all sorts of temporal blessings. But can you this evening thank God for delivering you from the greatest of all problems that you have, the problem of your sin? However you describe it, however great you think it is or you don't think it is, that is why we've been 
uh, hearing preaching about the coming of Jesus into the world. He came, yes, to bring peace, but he came to bring peace by saving us from our sins because that's the only way there can be peace between us and God and us at one with the other. That's why the Lord Jesus suffered and died and rose again from the dead. My friends, this is where the love of God is most clearly seen. In giving a son, in our utter helplessness and undeserving state, that we might be redeemed, we might be found, and we might be set free, and that we might be made well, whole, we might be at peace. And all that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us to be thankful people. Let us pray. Forgive us, Lord, when complaining and talking of our problems has been more a feature of our lives than giving thanks to you. Remember the command of the scripture, give thanks in all circumstances. Please help us, Lord, grant that this word will be a great blessing to us and that we shall be a thankful people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.